Everybody? Whoa, sorry about that. You never know when they're going to turn it on, you know? How's everybody doing? If you're a freshman, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand one more time? Okay. We are so glad to have you guys here. Um, if you feel new, it's okay. I'm new too, so we can be nervous and awkward together, okay? Um, no, but for real, uh, for, for you freshmen, we, uh, we all went through that stage where you were... Uh, walking your classes and you don't know anybody uh, you came to this town perhaps and this feels like the middle of nowhere um, and you're wondering is anybody gonna like me am I gonna have any friends and is this actually gonna work out and I want to tell you that everybody around you in so many of your classes is thinking the exact same thing um, so you can be awkward together and that's actually a bonding experience that's okay um, but we are glad that you're here uh, I think this is a great church for you get to plug into honestly um, I'm new in terms of being on staff. My name is Roman, by the way. I'm new in terms of being on staff, but I actually came to school out here at SFA back in 07 to 11. That's right, Axe and Jacks. Um, so came to school here and came to know Jesus through this church and just had my pathway changed. Um, and so I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. This is a good place to be, a good place to plug in. Um, I think, as I think back to my time walking into freshman year, I think about walking into this church even, uh, and I'm just reminded of so many spiritual misunderstandings that I was carrying with me. I, I grew up in church. I grew up around religious things and practices, um, but I, I walked around quite confused. There, there was a tradition that I was in, a church tradition that I was in, um, that taught me a form of faith that was very works-based. And so I felt like God had done me a favor in Jesus by opening a door uh, to a stairwell. And it was a gigantic stairwell, um, and, but he had done me a big favor by opening the door to it. But my goal now was to climb to God, and at some point, I was going to have favor with him again. And so I, I carried around that thought of that's how God worked. That's what Jesus was all for. He's the guy who opened the door and said, here you go. Um, and that produced a lot of guilt within me and just numerous things that, that did not breed life. It did not breed love for God or for, for other people. And as I grew, we kind of church hopped around and ended up in a different tradition um, that really didn't speak anything substantive. There was no content. We just kind of gathered together and there was churchy things that were done all together. Um, but there was no meat on the bone, if I can say that. It was like we would get together and sing some songs and hear a guy preach a sermon that nobody understood and then walk away and feel like, all right, there's my spiritual checkbox. I feel a little bit better now. Um, and so that was, that was one season. I just honestly felt like that was pointless. I'd rather stay home and sleep in on Sunday morning than do that. Uh, but my parents were making the choices at that point, you know. So, um, And another tradition that I ended up in, um, I, I was taught a different form of um, a religious message, and it was this, that, that life is pretty good for us, especially here in the States. Um, we get our basic needs met. Uh, we even have a little bit over and above. But there's this, there's this deep yearning that doesn't quite get satisfied by those things, and so Christianity is about satisfying that, that little part of your heart that isn't quite there yet. You got everything else kind of in line, but there's still that nagging lack, and Christianity is about satisfying that. Um, 
And so I, I grew up with numerous different understandings of what I would have called the gospel. Um, and it wasn't until I came here and actually read the Bible for the first time, and I saw who Jesus was from the Bible and what he did from the Bible, and I thought, this is far better news than I ever realized. I realized that growing up, as I was wandering spiritually, I had bought into a lot of different false gospels. And I don't blame anybody else for that. That's just what I took away from it. Uh, and it wasn't until I actually interacted with the Word of God and with the people of God that I actually came to see that there is a true biblical gospel. And it's far better than anything I had thought or been taught before. And so as I look out at this crowd, like I know that I'm not unique whenever it comes to that kind of a story. Some of you have been around, you've been plugged in, and you've been hearing faithful preaching for a while, and some of you are new. Um, many of us are still walking around with spiritual confusion, and we are calling things the gospel that aren't the gospel. And so what I want to do tonight is just lay out a couple of the false gospels that I kind of just summarized. I want to analyze them, and I want to see really what they produce. And then what I want to do is I want to turn to the book of Mark, and we're just going to start off with the first verse, and we're going to see how Mark defines the gospel. Um, yeah, so you can go ahead and grab a Bible. It's going to be a little bit before I get there, uh, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're looking at false gospels versus the true biblical gospel. And that first false gospel, if I, if I could kind of summarize it, I would just say there's two. I would say there's the works-based gospel, and there's the gospel of self-fulfillment. And I would say that those are pretty prevalent around where we are. If you've grown up around this area in the Bible Belt, um, you've probably felt or heard or even embraced some form of one of these two. So the works-based gospel is this idea that we have to climb to achieve God's favor. That if, if Jesus has really done anything, he's, he's done that favor, like I was saying, of opening that door and pointing to the stairwell and saying, hey, this thing was locked before, but here you go, go for it. And another iteration might be this thought of, I need to clean myself up before I get to God. That there's so much that I got to do, and I know that he's holy, and I can't be doing the things I'm doing, so I got to clean this stuff up before I can go and approach God. These are just different expressions of the works-based gospel. And the focus of the works-based gospel is religious self-improvement. So whatever it is, you fill in the blank. It's reading the Bible. It's tithing. It's attending church. It's serving. It's doing any number of good things. Um, but these are the means by which you make yourself better. These are your tools to improve yourself so that one day, the hope is that one day, finally God might find you satisfactory. Finally, you might have a relationship with him. That's the hope of the workspace gospel. And the result is actually kind of ironic. It actually ends up breeding and producing this hardworking existence that doesn't really end up actually achieving favor with God. It ends up with you having a guilty conscience and experiencing no intimacy with God. Right? Because all of us know, whenever we try to cr climb those stairs, after a while... We start to slip a little bit, or maybe we roll back down a few steps, and so you keep on trying, but you don't make the progress that you thought you could. And so your conscience is constantly racked by, am I good enough? Have I gotten far enough? 
how am I supposed to know when I actually have favor with God? And as you're wrestling with all of that, and as you're trying to rely on yourself and climb that ladder, there's no intimacy with God. Because he's far, he's removed, and you have to continue to work at it, make yourself better. You see, the works-based gospel actually says, you can do it, go for it. And at some point, you will achieve favor with God, and it promises that, but it never delivers. It exhausts, it makes you feel guilty, it destroys intimacy with God, and it's a quick path to saying, I'm done. This thing doesn't work. And so some of you have heard some form of this taught, maybe not explicitly like I've just said, but you've heard some form of the works-based gospel taught. Some of you have embraced that. Some of the people around you have thought that's what Christianity is all about, and therefore they've said, forget that, I reject that. And what I want to call your attention to is that is a false message. That is a false gospel. It's a lie crafted to distract you, to deceive you, and ultimately to destroy you. And what I want to remind you of is that there is a true and good gospel that is far better than anything the works gospel can offer you. And we'll get to that in a little bit. The second false gospel that I would, I would say is pretty prevalent around us is the gospel of self-fulfillment. This is the idea that, um, you know, life is pretty good right now. I have things kind of together. I'm materially satisfied, um, financially provided for. I got a good plan for the future. My relationships are going pretty well. It's just that it's that immaterial part of me that doesn't quite feel like it's right yet, that it's good yet. And so I go to church, and I hear a nice, encouraging message you know, I sing a few songs, and that kind of fills up my tank, and I'm good to go. Um, the, 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 the focus of the self-fulfillment gospel is me and my satisfaction. It's you and your satisfaction. And it boils down the Christian message to, hey, God is here to satisfy you. And so if you feel a lack, that's what he's here for. And the hope of the self-fulfillment gospel is I get what I want from God, and then finally, life will be complete. Finally, that last puzzle piece that's been missing will be put into place, and everything will be good. That thing that I'm missing, that's, that's it. The, the self-fulfillment gospel, though, has no room for any costly demand on your life. It has no place for God to actually say, things need to change here, and I'm about transforming you. It has no room for that. Because it's focused on you and your self-fulfillment. And the ironic result of the self-fulfillment gospel is a selfish, unproductive life that lacks all the zest, all the challenge, and all of the bigger purpose that God actually calls his people to. So if, if I think about a, an image for the self-fulfillment gospel, I think of somebody who just finished their hundredth nugget from Mickey D's, right? Sit on their couch, they did it, ah, finally, that felt good. But then right after that, they don't want to do anything, right? You're dead to the world. Turn on Netflix and fall asleep in five minutes. This is the self-fulfillment gospel that you're looking for satisfaction. You feel like you got it, and then that's it. And it lacks the challenge. It lacks the bigger picture. It lacks the purpose that, honestly, we all hunger for. And I think, honestly, our generation hungers for more than generations past. To be a part of a bigger picture to have a driving purpose 
that goes through the day in, day out, everything you do, no matter what it is, no matter what you're studying at school, no matter what job you end up getting, God is including you into something bigger. But the self-fulfillment gospel isn't about that. It's a false gospel. And so there's been some form of one of these two that I imagine that you are familiar with, if not having embraced it yourself. And when we set these alongside the true and biblical gospel, I think we see that the good news of Jesus is so much better. There's so much more life. There's so much more power. There's so much more that God has for you and for me in the gospel that's focused on Jesus Christ. And so we're going to turn now and look at Mark 1. And we're just going to look at one verse. So it's going to take us about 20 years to get through the gospel of Mark. I'm going to go verse by verse. No, um, this is just a unique night. We're, we're looking at this one verse because it is so densely packed. Um, Mark basically has this first sentence and summarizes the message that he's trying to communicate. And then the rest of the gospel, the rest of his story, is going to unfurl this. It's going to unfold it and illustrate what this actually means. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this one verse. I'm going to take a few of the dense words out and we're going to unpack them. And then we're going to say, okay, so what does this all mean? Okay. So read with me. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In that simple, brief, concise statement, Mark is essentially saying this. God is restoring and renewing all things through his Son, Jesus the King. God is at work to restore and renew all things through his Son, Jesus the King. And you're looking at your Bible and you're saying, how did you get that out of that verse? Let's go ahead and kind of unpack some of these words here, okay? Um, first of all, the gospel. Um, like I was saying, this word has been thrown around a ton, especially in our culture. Um, and we tend to, as Christians, think of the gospel as a book. So we have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke and John, the four gospels in our Bible. Um, but that's a later understanding of it. That's a literary genre. Um, that's a later development of the word, the gospel. Earlier than that, the gospel is about this joyful proclamation of victory. That's how the word was used before. It's a joyful proclamation of victory. And whenever we think about it in the sweep of the biblical story, it's about the victory of God. You see, the Old Testament tells the story that the world had become corrupt and broken and suffering and sin had just covered it. And God wasn't removed from that. He didn't ignore that. He didn't wash his hands and say, they did that to themselves. No, he stayed actively engaged with it. And right from the beginning, he said, this will not be the end of the story. This will not be. And we have this messy up and down history through the Old Testament. But the prophets look forward to a day whenever there would be messengers who would say, take Take heart, your God reigns. He will restore favor to his people. He will renew creation. He will make all things new. This is the sense of the gospel, speaking biblically. That God is at work in creation to make whole what has been broken. God reigns. This is a joyful proclamation. 
And so I have a friend who's, who said the, joy, the gospel is not advice, it's an announcement. And I think that fits well here. This is an official proclamation of victory. It's not just advice about how you should live your life a little bit different. Do this, don't do this. This is the banner under which all human history is playing out. That God is at work to rescue, redeem, and renew. And so that demands a response. Do you believe that? Or will you have some form of rejection? And what I want to draw out here is even to say, I don't know what I think about that. I'm going to table that and kind of come back to that later. Even to say that is a form of not accepting. And I understand that there's some of us in here who are still processing. We have a lot of questions. And I want to encourage you, this is a safe place to ask questions. This is a safe place to wrestle. You're not going to ask anybody something that has to do with the gospel and have some disagreements, and we're going to get upset at you and say, you can never come back. It's not this kind of place. Um, but I do want to impress on you that the gospel is an announcement. It's a proclamation. And because of that, it demands a response. And even to table it is a form of rejection. So the gospel, and the gospel is about Jesus Christ. Whenever we see that word Christ, we tend to think of that as Jesus' last name. Right? He's from the Christ family, um, which is normal. It's natural. We kind of have always use it that way. And it's almost used like that in the Bible. Uh, it becomes such a natural title for Jesus that it's almost used as his name. But the original meaning of this word is actually anointed king that God has chosen. It, we, we set Christ and the word Messiah alongside each other. And these are saying the same exact thing. Christ is anointed king from the Greek. Messiah is, in English, anointed king in Hebrew. And so, as I was talking about, as the prophets look forward to a day, whenever God would intervene, he would make things new, he would rescue and redeem, the prophets had an expectation that there would be a coming king who would do that. And so, Mark is saying, here we go. Let me tell you a story. The beginning of the good, joyful proclamation about Jesus, the anointed king chosen by God. That's what he's saying. Now, as soon as I start to say king or kingdom, there's some distance that kind of opens up. Uh, part of that is because we're just not familiar with that. We're not British. Um, another part of that is because we're American, and I really think that politically it's in our DNA to feel like, Monarchy is bad, right? We, we have a representative democracy. We say we have our elected leaders who kind of shape our, our society and help govern us. And we would point back at monarchies and say, well, this is a terrible form of government. Look at the suffering. Look at the oppression. Look at the greed that can corrupt this. And I would say, yeah, that's very true. There's so many examples of that. And there's a common theme there. They're all corrupt and wicked men and women who are the rulers in those situations. And the Bible paints a very, very different picture. When the Bible talks about kingdom, it's talking about the good, merciful, life-giving will of God being expressed through a king on earth who is righteous, who is humble, who cares for his people as his own children. 
This is the biblical picture of kingdom and king. And so, yes, kingdom is a terrible form of government whenever you have a corrupt king, a corrupt queen. But under a good king who expresses the will of God, it brings life and joy and peace and flourishing like you can't even imagine right now because our world is so broken. And so as I've gotten older, um, I find that fairy tales are actually a little bit more accurate sometimes than I ever thought they were. Um, One of the ways that I think they're more accurate is in the way that they tend to depict kingdoms. So I want you to think of me like of a Disney movie or uh, a picture book that you've read that had kings and queens in it. And I'm thinking of whenever there's a, a wicked or corrupt king, the picture tends to be dark and ominous, right? And, and the, the castle is sort of askew and it's black and there's dark clouds in the sky. And the people who walk around in that kingdom look beat down and emaciated and lifeless headed towards death. The animals in that kingdom are ravenous and they're hiding the woods and their dark eyes kind of peering out and the ground is like dead. There's no fruit or vegetables. This is the picture of a kingdom under a bad king or queen. It's a picture of death. But under a good king, the picture is very different. There's light and warmth The castle tends to be upright and white. The people are strong and healthy and have smiles on their faces. The ground is bringing forth fruit. The animals are prancing around, right? This is the way that they depict a a joyful, good kingdom under a good king. And I I know it sounds weird to equate this with what the biblical picture is, is actually drawing, but that's very accurate. God is at work through his anointed king, to rescue, to redeem, to renew and restore his creation. He created it good and beautiful in the beginning. Sin has corrupted and messed that up, and God is actually going to make it even better than it was in the beginning. There's some ways that fairy tales are actually a little bit more accurate than we would expect. So, when Mark says, the beginning of the joyful proclamation about Jesus, the anointed king, this is what he has in his mind. That, hey, that thing that we've been waiting for all along, this is happening, and it's happening in Jesus. And he goes on and he says one more thing about Jesus. He says that he is the son of God. Now, in the ancient world, son of God is language that is often used of emperors. Um, They had this mindset of, Normal people are down here. This is the bottom rung. And then you have not many people in between, really. And then there's the king who's way up here. And then you have the gods. Okay? And so the king or the ruler is sort of the gateway to the gods. He's the one who expresses the will of the gods on the earth. He achieves their favor and does their will. And he's like a class different. Like way up, up, up and above anybody else. There's also this understanding of Son of God as um, a son reflects and reveals his father because he shares his nature. So I think about this every time that I see my friend's kids now. They're starting to have little ones, and there's there's a way that physically they represent their parents. You see the likeness, uh, but there's also a way that they show their character, right? There's there's ways that they act, the ways that they are, 
that reflect their parents. And this is the exact idea that I'm trying to get at. A son reflects and reveals his father because he shares the nature of his father. And so what I want to draw out here is that Mark is making this claim that Jesus is the son of God. This means that he's more than man. He can reflect God the Father. He can reveal God the Father because he shares his nature. He's more than a mere man. And so whenever we step back and we piece this all together, we see that in this packed, concise verse, Mark says, the beginning of the joyful proclamation about Jesus, the anointed king chosen by God, the son of God, the one who is more than mere man. That is a dense statement. And really, it's going to take a whole story to unpack that, to illustrate that, to show what that means and how that plays out in everyday human life. But this is the biblical gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. You see, in in contrast to the works-based gospel, instead of having the focus being on me and my own self-improvement by religious activity, the focus here is on what God is doing in Jesus. And as opposed to the self-fulfillment gospel, the focus is not on me and my own satisfaction, you and your own satisfaction. The focus is on what God is doing in Jesus. And what I want to tell you is that the desire that's behind both the works-based gospel, having a relationship with God, and behind the self-fulfillment gospel, being satisfied by God, those are both answered in the true biblical gospel. That because Jesus is the Son of God, he's come to reconcile and establish a relationship with human creatures and God again. That's what the Son does. He comes to reveal the Father and to show the Father has not left you, he has not abandoned you, and there is not just doom and judgment for you. Come, follow me, let me show you the love of the Father. That's what is behind the desire in the workspace gospel, favor with God, relationship with God, and it's in Jesus. And that desire for satisfaction, that yearning for something more, that's satisfied in Jesus. You know that things are messed up. How many of you have had a family member or friend sick or die? That is not how it should be. And God is changing that because of Jesus. This is the good news of Jesus. And it's far better than any perversion that you've heard, any twisting that you may have embraced. And as I, as I think about where all of us could be at, I know that there's just a number of different responses that we could or should have. So some of you are sitting in here and you're pretty unacquainted with Christianity. This is new. Um, you're not walking in with a whole lot of baggage in terms of religious activities or messages. This is just totally not your category. And what I want to encourage you to do is to receive this news with joy. That God has not forgotten about his creation. He has not forgotten about you. He's intervened in Jesus to rescue, redeem, and renew you. I want to call you to trust Jesus by submitting to him as the king that God has chosen and by expecting him to make all things new, including your life, 
your broken, difficult life. He can make that new. And there's others of you who are in here who are unacquainted and you just need a little bit more time to trot things through. That is okay. Mark is going to be doing this for quite a while. And he's going to illustrate what this message means, how this is good news for the everyday. So I want to encourage you to stick, hear, listen, read the Gospel of Mark with us, and see what you think. But at the end of this service, we're going to have people, a prayer team, who are going to be standing along the walls. You'll see them as we have another song at the end. Um, and they will be people that you can ask questions, you can have a conversation with. If you need to pray, uh, they will be there for you. There are others of you who grew up around Christianity and honestly hasn't made much of an impact. Uh, it feels weak and powerless and uh, like a lame waste of time, frankly, most of the time. Um, and what I want to say to you is perhaps you've embraced a false gospel. Perhaps what you have defined as Christianity is a flat-out lie. Because you can't believe that God is working to renew all things through a good king. And he's done that for your good and remain unchanged and have a lifeless, joyless existence. And so for those of you who, who grew up and this didn't really make any difference for you, Christianity hasn't really sunk in and done anything great for you, I just encourage you, pray to the Lord. Ask him to open your heart and your mind that you would receive this, that you would be transformed by this, that God would intervene where you feel dry and like nothing's happening. And then for others of you, you are committed Christians. You're walking with the Lord. Your faith is rooted in the gospel. And what I want to say is this is going to be a good season for us. I think your understanding of the gospel is going to be nuanced. It's going to be built out a little bit more. It's going to be deeper and richer. I know that some of you are sitting in the crowd and saying, when is he going to talk about Jesus died and forgiveness of sins and all that stuff? And that is certainly part of the gospel. It really is. But this is Mark 1.1, and we got until Mark 15 for that to come about, right? Um, so all in due time, there's going to be an expansion of your understanding of the good news, the joyful proclamation about Jesus. It includes forgiveness of sins. It is about his death and resurrection. Um, but I wanted you to get the big picture. I also think that your understanding of Jesus is going to be challenged and deepened. Every time that I come back to the Gospels, I realize that my categories and my understandings just fall short. And Jesus is way more unexpected than I would, I would think. He says things differently. He does things differently than I would expect him to. And so I think this is going to be a good time for us to revisit the character and the work of Jesus. And I think that connected with that, your walk as a disciple, a passionate, devoted follower of Jesus is going to be deepened because as we grow in a knowledge and a love for Jesus, our growth as disciples is directly connected to that. It's going to overflow into that. And so many of us have been acquainted with the spiritual confusion that's just around us. It's in the atmosphere almost. Many different ways of talking about what the good news is. Sometimes it's focused on how you make yourself better. Sometimes it's focused on how can I be fully satisfied Mark is reminding us it's about the reign and rule of God that will restore all things through Jesus, the King, His Son. And this is better news than we could have ever hoped for.